Wasn't that fun to see the Qatar racing silks in the winner's circle at Churchill with You Almost Had Me over the weekend. You know, we love partnering with our friends at Qatar Racing. Qatar Racing is a subsidiary of Kipco, the largest sponsor in British flat racing. As a global racing and breeding operation, Qatar Racing Chairman Sheikh Fahad bin Abdullah Al Thani has created an expansive international sponsorship portfolio to include the Breeders' Cup and events like the Pegasus World Cup Turf. Qatar Racing has over 100 horses in training, many mares and foals and yearlings, as well as four top-class stallions, Kamiko, Zustar, Havana Gold. You're hearing about Havana Gold a little bit later in the show, and Lightning Spear. Don't miss out on the great Qatar Racing action and learn more at inthemoneypodcast.com slash Qatar. Hello and welcome to the In The Money Players Podcast. This is our show for Monday, November 27th. Actually going to do shows, uh, two early week shows this week. Want to take advantage of a Giving Tuesday tomorrow. So we'll be back with more then. But we're going to kick off the week with sort of an international focus. And our first guest, somebody who is typically here to talk international races, his work around the Breeders' Cup. Now, I know we didn't get exactly the results we wanted, but boy... (laughs) And I hear so many people saying ahead of time, thank you so much for having Michael on. It was so great. That I mean, Michael question is this Michael. Michael Adolfson, how are you, my man? I'm doing all right. I was going to say, uh, pardon my interruption. I um, I don't know if I uh, they were saying that afterwards. It was, I mean, they, I, I haven't had that bad of a Breeders' Cup in a while. It's just that, I mean, I, it's not that I I was broke too far below even because a lot of my big H-way shots landed yeah. in a way, like, Lidavita, Sharyar, Proxy were all double digits, and they all landed in the top three, you know. Um, but it didn't. Uh, that didn't pay the bills, and uh, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't my shining moment. But I thought I, I you know, I, I don't really regret any of those uh, selections. They were all logical horses to me, and uh, I just wish, you know, I had a little better luck. We're not that results oriented around here. You know, you might see other places, places that veer more into the tout direction that are more results oriented. For us here, it's about, I think, and I think I speak for the listeners when I say this, please listeners, correct me if I'm wrong. I know you like winners and all, but it's the process. It's the ability of somebody who can, you know, really talk about a race, come up with angles that aren't in the form, give that bird's eye view uh, really, it's not bird's eye view, is it? It's it's the uh, it's 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 the ground level view that, yeah. that you give at these events. I mean, that's what that's what people were were, were praising um, most of all. So anyway, I think you did a great job. Don't don't sweat most of that. It was a it was a tricky one, and and you know just didn't seem like he was himself acting up uh, pre race and pulling and these. I, nobody can hold. Nobody can say that was a bad pick. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and I mean that was my strongest play, and and you know it wasn't even a, a big long shot play like my usual shots, but that's okay. You know, um, I heard he acted up really, really badly, and nobody could. It was never on camera, so nobody could really see that, and um, it definitely affected his race. And that's uh, you know, it's all it's all in the past now. But at least when I found out that, I felt a little better about his performance. <laughs> right. Well, it's nice sometimes to have these things explained. We don't, you know, the whole thing about. Uh, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And sometimes when you can understand what was going on, it does make it a little bit easier to turn the page. But we're not here to talk Breeders' Cup today. We're here to talk Japan Cup. We did the preview show the other night, and it was just another 
awesome performance from Equinox. I wanted to get your take on the race in general, and then we'll drill down and, and try to put Equinox into a little bit of perspective. Was was this race as impressive to you as the sort of the bare visual specimen? Yeah, it was to me. It was it was you know the best we've seen, um, or at least as good as Almond Eye, um, and she was the best her force I've seen in my life. I think uh, she was just a very very special. Uh, well, she's not dead. She's alive, still making babies. But you know, as a racehorse, she was pretty amazing, and she had so many gears. And he's a different different beast as far as it goes. Uh, he just needs a distance of ground where she could run multiple. Um, distances but in the context of the race itself i mean it was over in the first probably two furlongs um the moment that christoph decided to place him and was in third there right behind title holder because i knew we all knew where title holder was going to be um and where panthalasa was going to be they were going to be uh, sort of uh, mimicking when uh mimicking uh that was the race a few years ago that a uh, title holder won uh, last year where he chased him down and made first run and won the race. Now, when he was stalking title holder and had Liberty Island behind him and I, Yuga Kawada kind of had to force his hand a little bit to stay within range of Equinox, probably taking a little bit of the starch out of, out of the Philly. Uh, yeah, that did, that didn't, that to me just basically told me that he's, this horse is going to win this for fun. Um, and he did, and he wanted basically trotting under the wire <laughs> in the last few strides. He might have let him break behind the gate, and he would have won. To me, that's how impressive it was. It, it was, and, and to me, it's just when he's when he's on his A game like that. It's his B game wins, his C plus game wins, his A game destroys, and and uh, that's what we saw. And you know, people say it was the one of the best fields we've had for the Japan Cup, and that's true. I do think that Almond Eye beat us, beat an arguably slightly better. Field should be contrail and and an informed daring tact, um, and a glory vase would just want a Hong Kong vase. So like this was uh, to me a slightly tougher field that she beat, but I'm not sure that she would have been able to beat him in that form if they were one on one. Would you have a guess like ratings wise where this horse is now, or if oh you could gosh. make a figure a figure equivalent of what you think this horse would run uh, in a theoretical Breeders' Cup turf tilt? I mean, how, how much is there between him and the turf horses we're used to seeing, even the really good ones? There's at least ten lengths between him and Auguste Rodin, in my opinion. Wow, that's a lot. Um, I mean, I'm not I'm not even going to play around with it because. Uh, people say, well, he's a very good horse. Uh, Goose Rodan is, a, is, a, is, a, is also like an extremely talented animal. Um, but you don't, it's the ease with which he does it. And you don't understand, very similar to Almond Eye, you don't understand how quickly they're going until you see what the jockeys are doing on the other horses. Right. And he's just, and luckily they had the same rider in the same silks. And it's easier to conceptualize at that point. Um, Almondi and and, um, and Equinox, but uh, to me, Equinox just uh, does everything so easily and fluidly, and he's a big, strong beast. And um, seeing him up close here in Dubai was something special. Um, the way he just easily dismantled one of the best fields all year, anywhere. Yep. Um, so yeah, and it was very similar to that performance, except there was no Pantalosa winging it on the front end, and no title holder to use as a as a as a bit of bit of a a watermark in the middle of the race where you should be. Um, but yeah, the, uh, to me, he was just outstanding. He's better than anything we've seen in the States numbers wise. 
I mean, you're looking at, we don't see a lot of super high turf, say buyer speed figures. I'm not going to, or any kind of super number, but like, let's just put him in the, like, he's in the mid one twenties, you know, like easily. Um, uh, What I've seen on the clock justifies it. I think it was Graham Pavey on Twitter. Very worthwhile. Follow long ball to no one. I think is the handle had the the last three furlongs under 33 seconds. I mean, this is racehorse time. And to do that while not particularly stretching, you know, it's a dangerous game to say, oh, and they could have gone faster. But I defy you to watch that tape and say he did not tell, agree that he probably could have gone faster in that last furlong or oh, somewhere in the stretch anyway. It was, it was awesome. He had two or three lengths. He had a half a second in him, you know, like that he could have, he could have, um, uh, you know, he could have run through the line and added two or three more lengths is basically what I'm saying. And he didn't. He was wrapped up in the final 30, 40 meters. And, um, you know, we, we saw we we saw just a, even the reaction of Christoph afterwards where he was um, a little bit emotional because, you know, he's had been so lucky in his career to be on not only one but two of the best horses we've ever seen. That was great footage. I don't know if you saw the clip of them coming back through the tunnel and the minute there was like any kind of privacy seeing the trainer burst into tears was uh i thought that was pretty cool video that that uh, somebody managed to capture also all this stuff's on twitter i apologize for not being able to give proper credit where credit is due but you know our audience michael some of them follow international racing closely some of them are just you know hearing about it on our airwaves i'd like to hear a little bit of perspective about uh equinox's body of work and sort of where he came from to be before he was regard widely regarded as the world's fastest horse. I mean, he's interesting because he's, I believe, the second crop of Kitazan Black. Um, he's a horse that, uh, and and that and Kitazan Black was a big fan favorite, um, who was known for his stamina and his speed, uh, his ability to lay as close as, he, as needed. He could he could take a race coast to coast, um, and he definitely played that forward. And and it's very rare for horses as good as he was to beget something better. Um, and Equinox didn't quite, I mean, he started off his career extremely well. He was very, very highly regarded in the beginning, but he kept on having little things go wrong that sort of, uh, hindered him from winning the two biggest races of the early part of his career and the guineas and the derby. Um, and then about the, this time, about 13 months ago, uh, he really stamped himself as the horse in the, um, Tenno show. And after that, he just, just dismantled the the um, Ari McKinnon, came over to Dubai, was the big horse nobody thought he would lose, but then big horses started stacking against him. You had an Irish Derby winner in Westover. Um, you know, you know, you had top, top class horses from Europe in general just coming after him, and he just dismissed them there. And he, yes, I mean, I guess one, one knock against him is say he's always run on good or good to firm ground. Um, he's never been asked to, over a trying course, and the... Uh, the real shame this year about him not taking his ARC invitation is that um, the ground was good, good to firm in the yeah, ARC for the first time in a long time. So, and people are going to be like, well, how does he, um, gets onto another tangent of how does he stack up against um, Ace Impact? Uh, I mean, and uh, full disclosure, I'm, 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 you know, friends with the, some of the people involved with Ace Impact, but uh, I don't think they stack. <laughs> I I think that that Equinox would have a distinct advantage against him on every level, and um, it would be very difficult for Ace Impact to make up that ground. I think he, if he would have been in that Japan Cup 
or say even in the Shima, you know, this kind of context of those types of races where Equinox is out there showing his speed or his ability to cut loose without even trying like that. Um, he would have been chasing him home but never getting to him. Interesting. Sadly, we don't get to see that. I was I was thinking just after the arc, like, wow, Ace Impact has put himself into this fastest horse in the world conversation, at least. But it turns out that's going to be it. How about Equinox's future? What do you think is going to happen? Will there potentially be a return tilt to Dubai? Could you see them running a whole season? Could you see them trying to ship for an international prize, whether it was the ARC or you know where I'm going with this, perhaps mm-hmm. the Booters Cup? What 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 is your uh, prediction about what we see from here? I mean, I'll be fairly surprised if he isn't retired because he does have a large amount of owners uh, in Silk Racing who are as basically a large syndicate of people who will vote to decide his future. And unlike Almondai, who was a mayor who ran into her five-year-old season and won two Japan Cups in her three- and five-year-old seasons, uh, he's a he's a stallion prospect, you know, and sure. and he's extremely well-bred, and uh, he's, he's bred by Northern Farm. He's got a place to go home to that's going to take really great care of him. Um, yeah, to me, there's there's a little more pressure, too. I know that they like to – they're not afraid to run their better horses into their later years, but this is an exceptional animal and probably the best we've seen as far as the as far as male horses there go in quite some time, if not a full decade. And I I think that they're gonna be up against it to to retire him. If they don't, obviously you're gonna probably see a campaign that starts in Dubai or even, you know, I would I would love to see them try him on the very turf friendly dirt in the Saudi Cup. Um, but I don't think $20 million means anything to them when it comes to, or $10 million, which would be the winning pot, when it comes to um, the prestige of this horse, the, the the legacy of this horse. I think they'd go probably to the Shima again, and then they'd start looking uh, abroad, you know, look at maybe the Takarizuka again, and then maybe the ARC. The ARC would be the main goal with him. Yes, obviously this is an American-based show, and you want to see him in the Breeders' Cup, but they're not going to care nearly as much about running in the Breeders' Cup with this horse as they would the ARC. Right. The arc is the, that's the Holy grail, right? For Japanese racing. Yeah. And that's, you know, that it, when arc rose to its prominence, uh, it's very much, they very much tried to emulate that with their large, with their big races there. Um, and they, you know, they've tried over and over and over. They've had some very, very good horses get very close. Um, or probably should have won the race. You know, these are, you know, Ocondor Paso was very, very close as well, but ran into a monster in Monjou. You know, these are, these are tough beats, and they if they're tempted to, to keep them in training at all, I would I would bet the world that it's just for that race. That would be fascinating. All right, I'm going to be an optimist here for a second. Now, I don't know the Japanese bloodstock market really enough to just, just – what I'm saying might have no basis, in fact. But <laughs> if you were looking at this horse from an American point of view, the fact that the grade one didn't come until October of the three-year-old year – does that does that mean that since you're not dealing with the kind of precocity that gets people nuts in the USA breeding mm-hmm. industry, that maybe there is a chance that he could still appreciably add to his value as a stallion with another superstar season older? You know, I feel like if there was a big two-year-old group one, an early three-year-old group one, grade one, you'd, you'd have a very different perspective, at least from an American point of view. Does that mentality hold over there in their breeding industry? Does it open up maybe a sliver of possibility that we could get another season out of him? 
I mean, it's it's not like he was a, a bad younger horse to begin with. I mean, he won first out at nine furlongs in August uh, of his two-year-old season. Like, he was – and he won in 147 and change. Like, he's he was zooming along and, and letting people know that he was quite proper. Um, and then, you know, he's a horse that won a group two at the end of his season, just one star later, three 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 months later, uh, and won it like, like a superstar um, to end his season. So, And then he came back – and was quite unlucky in a pair of classic races not to win those. Like this horse could easily be undefeated and have a Frankel-esque atmosphere around him right now. So I don't think that there's any worry about his precocity as a young horse. And especially with how well the kid is on blocks have, have performed at two and three. Um, you know, oh, fair point. I'm grasping at straws here because I want the horse to keep running. And there oh, aren't the oh, yeah. grade one. How many great, how many top level races are there for, two-year-olds in in japan i mean is is the the race that the, the race that he won is that about as prestigious as it gets anyway for, for um, there there are there, there's the si high which is the basically their the, their breeders cup juvenile um yeah. on the grass uh that is a, a more prestigious race but i think they knew this horse needed a distance of ground they didn't start he never he's never run less than nine furlongs so i don't think they were ever going to run him the mile of that race um so yeah that to me, I think they were just keeping him in his comfort zone, knowing that he was a big, strong frame of an animal. And he was a two-year-old. You could see that he was going to fill out. And now he's just a beast. So, yeah, they, they, they did the right thing. And he's going to be fun for them to pick mares for. It's not like they're going to have trouble selling him, uh, you know, or, you know, advertising him. If they do retire him, you know, Lord forbid, um, they do retire him, they you'll probably see them go on a bit of a spree buying. I wouldn't be shocked if they did what they did about five to 10 years ago when they went and bought a bunch of dirt sprinters from the States who ran in grade twos and grade ones. I mean, look at Dustin Diamond's, uh, the dam of do deuce, you know, like they, they love to buy this proper speed from the States, uh, even turf sprinters from, from Europe and breed them to their stout bloodlines and get proper horses. Yeah, it's it'll be a fun story to follow, but the funnest will be if we get to see some more time on the on the racetrack. And yeah, I hope so. Yeah, the, the arc would be I mean, it would be incredible. It'd be an incredible thing. To and, and, and and if he does come and he does start the best time to see him, not that I mean, I am in Dubai and this is obviously a little a little biased, but the yeah. best time to see him would be here because, you know, it's a it's a one it's a direct flight from most major cities in the States uh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> on Emirates. And it's also a. um uh, the atmosphere here, um, if he came back again, would be electric. I mean, it would be just out of this world. I know the arc is the end of the year and everybody's waiting to see you know, the big horses clash, but it would just be a showcase for him. Be terrific. I might have to get me on a plane for for, for <laughs> that one. So we'll, we'll $6 see. $6 million. Dollars. It's not like it's, it's a, it'll be a $6 million workout. <laughs> 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 Hopefully, some people who are going to be involved in the vote are uh, are listening and have and ha- have the English skills to be uh, listening to us today. <laughs> and we can we can convince some of them. We'll sway it. We'll, we'll we'll sway it to some degree, interfering in the in this Japanese election, as it were. Um, <laughs> what else is going on with you, my friend? I know you've been busy. Yeah, I've, um, I'm kind of working in two different countries right now. I obviously live in Dubai, and I do. Um, a lot of TV and production work for Dubai Racing Channel. They're kind enough to have me another contract and just picked up a new contract on um, JCSA, Jockey Club of Saudi Arabia, on the English channel. I'll be presenting there um, 
and I'm in my going into my second week this week. And it's been a lot of fun to dive in, you know, headfirst into Saudi Arabian racing and kind of um, figure out some idiosyncrasies that how the track plays, how the horses look, you know, she's, I saw some really great raw talent this past week. Um, horses that of both breeds, both Arabian and thoroughbreds that will definitely have implications on both Saudi cup and Dubai world cup day and possibly henceforth and bigger um, destinations around the world. But yeah, that, those things are keeping me fairly busy. And I also have a, I'm the jockey agent for Christian Demuro who just won his second arc. And that's been keeping me busy as well. And uh, we're getting ready for a $1.35 million race this week, this Sunday in Abu Dhabi. We're going to try to win with a little, with a very live long shot named, um, or uh, named Kingmaker. Um, so yeah, just, uh, just bowling along as best I can right now and uh, try and trying to keep my feet under me. Love it. Well, hopefully we'll have you involved in uh, in our Hong Kong International show, which we're working on getting off the ground. Always good to catch up with you. Your, the work on the channels that you do, does any of that come over to the U.S. by ADW feed or any other format? Um, the I mean, the Dubai Racing Channel, I don't know if we'll go through an ADW feed, but I do know that usually TVG covers the um, – the actual racing for for Maidan's Dubai World Cup Carnival, but that might not fully start until January. I don't know about that. Um, as far as seeing my beautiful face, your best bet is to uh, or face for radio. Uh, your, my your best bet is to go on to probably the JCSA underscore Racing uh, YouTube channel, and that's where I'll be. Um, I think this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday we have uh, about twelve races per day. About every twenty five to thirty minutes, they it's a it's a it's a sprint and a marathon somehow at the same time it's like a it's like a relay race except you're making about 18 laps (laughs) great stuff michael well we'll look for you there we'll look for you here and we appreciate you uh, putting some perspective uh on this equinox performance in the japan cup we'll be talking soon thank you very much always still time to sign up for the Arizona Symposium. I'm getting ready to head out there on Sunday. It takes place from December 4th through 6th in Tucson, Arizona. You can get all the information over at inthemoneypodcast.com slash RTIP, Racetrack Industry Program at the University of Arizona. Looking forward to these panels. Want to see Jessica on her panel that she's hosting out there. We've got the Category 1 panel. I'll definitely be going to that one, as well as the CAW panel, probably the most anticipated one with uh, Don Johnson, uh, one of the heads of the computer teams, going to be on there along with several interesting industry folks, including our buddy Pat Cummings. Once again, we'll find out more in the moneypodcast.com slash RTIP. Next up on the show, very happy to welcome in a returning guest to give us a little bit of a review of the flat season in England and to talk about a very exciting sale coming up from Tattersalls. We've got Jimmy George. Jimmy, what's going on? Pete, hi. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's um, uh, we've had an exciting season here over in Europe. Um, plenty to reflect on, uh, on the racing front and on the sales front. We've got uh, the Tattersalls December sales stretching out in front of us, beginning today with yearlings, then going into the weanlings and the fillies and breeding stock, uh, fillies and mares starting on Monday, the 4th of December. So, yeah, this brings our, our season to a close. And uh, obviously, we've had a, a great end to the turf flat season here as well. 
I definitely want to drill down, especially into the Phillies and Mares sale. We'll get to that in a minute. But I like the idea of starting with some reflections from this year. A lot of our audience pays attention uh, day in, day out to the flat season over there. Others are probably more tuned in around Breeders' Cup and when things are happening. But when you look back at the 23 flat season as a whole, I'd love to get you to put forth some of the the horses and or storylines that you think were the most memorable or important. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, uh, the American audience saw some pretty special European performances at Santa Anita only a few weeks ago, which uh, gives um, gives a, an insight into some of the stars of, of the European season. August Rodin in the Breeders' Cup turf. Look, it was a phenomenal ride from Ryan Moore. He is he is supreme in in my humble opinion. Um, but uh, even without Ryan at his best, I think August Rodin is a very very good middle distance turf colt. So you saw him, you saw him at his finest uh, on, on Breeders' Cup day. Um, you saw a very smart performance from from one of the Phillies stars of the of the year as well in Inspiral. Who um, you know she she um, she had to do it slightly harder way. Uh, oh yeah, and a lesser a lesser filly, I think, wouldn't have got home that day. She was amazing, and I was particularly impressed with her because she didn't seem to me to be not. She, she looked great. I mean, she's beautiful, but she didn't seem as comfortable as some of the other European runners during the week and in the pre race. Um, the pre-race proceedings was actually on edge to a degree that made me uncomfortable. I, I was fortunate to be standing next to uh, a mutual, uh, a mutual friend of ours in uh, Camilla Perrette from GBRI who told right. me, Oh no, don't worry. That's just her. That doesn't mean she's going to run a bad race. And, and boy, was she right. Cause that was such a, a game and impressive effort. And to think that she, she surely must have wasted some mental energy with that stuff beforehand. I mean, just, Seems like one who who just did just just tremendous talent and August Rodin, what a great performance! So cool that we're going to get another season out of him. And my question for you about August Rodin specifically is, you know, being on the with him obviously being a a, a homebred mm. as so many of the uh, of the Kumo runners are. But in the commercial sales business, how important is it to you to see? Bloodlines like August Rodin bringing in the the Japanese blood with the with the Galileo blood. Is that something that you that you pay attention to and have to think about in terms of you know marketing for for your sales going forward when we see such a potentially you know breed changing crosses that we're having now with horses like Saxon Warrior and, and Augusta Rodin? Yeah, I, I look. I mean, I think we've we've all heard um, Aidan O'Brien uh, eulogising Matt August Rodin um, after his after his Group One successes, and he has always stressed the importance that the that John Magner and the wider Coolmore team place on the success of this horse and the the impact appropriate that he's by deep impact, the impact he could and hopefully will have on the on the European and global breeding scene in years to come. We we can know you know, we well, we haven't been able to ignore the um the, the success of Japanese racing and breeding for quite a few years now, but it really is it, it's I think it's hugely significant that we will have a a sire son of deep impact of this quality retiring to to stud at Coolmore in the you know by the look of it at the end of 2024 he is a magnificent horse he is bred unbelievably well out of rhododendron who was one of the best race fillies that Coolmore have had that Ballydoyle have had in recent years 
he has all the makings of a very, very influential stallion. And he's from a sire line that I think it's it's crucial that we get as much as we possibly can of this Sunday Silence line. You know, the, the, it, he was a game-changing stallion himself. His son, Deep Impact, has carried on that influence. And uh, I'd say we can't get enough of it. Definitely going to be uh, some book one uh, yearlings in the future with uh, with those tying into that uh, bloodline for sure. Uh, the Breeders' Cup, obviously a great place to start when talking about the, the season abroad and getting to see these superstar performers do their thing on U.S. soil was great. How about uh, domestically over there? What are some of the other highlights when you look back to this, uh, the Triple Crown season, for, for example, what, what what stands out the most to you? Yeah, I mean, look at the, when you get to the end of any flat turf season, you, I, I guess, you're you're turning your thoughts to to next year. I think that's the wonderful thing about the the flat game is you're you're always looking forward. And we got, I mean, I, I don't want to turn this into a sort of Ballydoyle Appreciation Society. <laughs> you're hard pressed not to this year because City of Troy looks extra special as well, and um, they will be thrilled to bits to have a, a, a son of Justify um, establish himself as a, as a very clear leader of his generation in Europe. I mean, look, we know Justify had two winners on Breeders' Cup weekend. He's he. It's not all about City of Troy, but he looks extra special. And uh, there's a lot of chat about him being a triple crown, a potential triple crown winner already. And I think that's the, the measure of, of how people rate him already. He's you know unbeaten in three starts. But it's the manner in which he's won these races that has been unbelievably impressive. So, yeah, a lot to look forward to on that on that score. And uh, I think, you know, on a, on a different, you know, to, to sort of move away from the, the extraordinary powerhouse that Bally Doyle is, I thought, again, and, and referencing the Breeders' Cup, it was brilliant to see uh, the two-year-old Big Evs trained by Michael Appleby um, winning winning a Breeders' Cup race. Um, you know, they're a relatively, relatively small operation. Or, well, they're not. Numerically, they're not small. But they're, you know, perhaps we're not used to seeing the Appleby team, the Michael Appleby team, um, you know, uh, carrying all before them at, gr- at group and grade one level. So to see a, a two-year-old like Big Evs establish himself as a, as a sprinter of the very highest caliber was fantastic. And he was bought... You'll be thrilled to know that he is a very fine advertisement for Tattersalls as well, because he was bought here as a yearling for only 50,000 guineas. So uh, 50,000 guineas yearling, Breeders' Cup a few months later, it's, it's, it's special stuff. That's great. What do, you, what do you imagine the plan? What would the logical plan for Big Evs be for, for next season? Can't really see him stretching out further than the sprint distances next year. Um, he's, uh, I think off the top of my head, I'm not convinced he's, uh, he, he ran further than five furlongs in the whole of this season. So I, I think it'd be very unlikely to see him stretching out beyond that, beyond, certainly beyond six next year. He's, um, he's out of a mare by Oasis Dream, who himself was a sprinter. Sure. Uh, so I think that'll be his future. And, you know, the other one that springs to mind, uh, in, in that category is a Havana Gray two year old called Van Deek, who, oh, sure. Yeah, who like Big Evs um, ended the season unbeaten, and like Big Evs is a very fine advertisement for Tattersalls. I can't, I can't stop myself. It's almost like we planned this, Jimmy. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Time in, time in reconnaissance. <laughs> but he looked really special. He's, um, he, he's only run four times. He's never been beaten. His last two starts were Group One wins. 
and they were they were impressive group one win. So he won the middle park on his final start. They were toying, I think, with maybe having a dart at the Dewhurst over seven furlongs, but but um I think on reflection decided that might have been <clears throat> might have been a bridge too far this year. But he's by this young sire Havana Gray, who is quickly emerging as a very significant um a significant young stallion with the emphasis on speed. You know, most of them look like being sprinters. And this lad, he was bought at the December yearling sale last year for only 42,000 guineas, the sale that's actually taking place today. And would you believe it, turned up at the town of sort of Craven Breeze Up sale only, what have we got? So January, February, March, I mean, literally four and a half months later, where he made 625,000 guineas. <laughs> so that was a, a good day at the office for his very shrewd consigner, Roderick Kavanagh. Um, and uh, yeah, he's lived up to his sale topping credentials ever since. That's great, and and uh, definitely exciting runner to pay attention to. It's a little bit. It sounds like it's maybe a little bit different over there, where you might not even try to stretch out certain horses because they're just so obviously sprinters. In our game here in North America, it's so triple crown driven. That, you know, we saw them, you know, even a horse like Jackie's Warrior, who obviously was, you know, such a great sprinter and sort of seemed to be, seemed to shape the whole time like he was going to be a sprinter. They still, they, they're obligated to try to stretch out even, you know, almost no matter what here. Not necessarily the case over there, it sounds like. No, not always. I mean, I think it is very, very tempting for, I mean, let's take Van Dyck, for example. I mean, it, it's it's fairly evident that, if he stretches out, it will be only as far as a mile. That would be the the very the very limit. And I don't think I, I, I hope nobody in the Simon and Ed Crisford camp thinks I'm talking out of turn there. But you know, the way he runs the, on pedigree, everything suggests that he will probably be a sprinter. They may want to try and stretch out to a mile to try and give him a dart at the two thousand guineas. There's only one classic mile race for the Colts. So, um, you know, and he, he, he won't, you know, if it doesn't pan out, there's the rest of the, the rest of the season and the rest of his career to revert to sprinting. So I wouldn't rule it out, but I'd be very, very surprised if we saw him ever run over further than a mile. And it may not even, they may choose not even to do that. But yeah, it, it is a bit different. You know, we, we have a lot of uh, two-year-old racing over these five, six furlong sprinting trips and a lot of opportunities for those sort of horses later in their careers and sometimes think connections think well hold on let's let's play to our strengths and and not be diverted by um unrealistic options like you know trying to make horses stay distances they're clearly not suited to i wanted to go back to city of troy for a minute because looking at the past performances of of coolmore in terms of where they spot horses um, at the Breeders' Cup. It's been a number of years since we saw this, but never never a team that's afraid to take a shot on dirt. And given the bloodlines involved with, with City of Troy, I mean, do you think it's possible we could see him I mean, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but hey, that's the fun of podcasts in the in the in the off season, right? Do you yeah. think there's a chance we could see him contest a race like the Classic? And if a horse like that, let's just pretend, let's let's do a little thought experiment. He has the season we're expecting over in Europe. How much more valuable does it make a horse like 
city of Troy potentially as a stallion if he can prove that he he, he acted on dirt as well. Well, it 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 makes every option open, doesn't it, with a with a stallion prospect? And I thought it was very interesting what um, Aidan O'Brien said about August Rodin after his. Um, after his Breeders' Cup turf success, is you know almost saying you know, he, he's got such a wonderful action, he's got such a <clears throat> a, a versatile way of uh, of of working in the morning and the the way he conducts himself that he wouldn't rule him out as a as a dirt prospect and wouldn't rule out a, a the, the Breeders' Cup Classic as a realistic option. And uh, look, it would be fascinating. They they've tried it before. Um, you know, they, the Giants Causeway came within a whisker, didn't he? Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, no doubt with the right, the right horses, <clears throat> a team as shrewd and ambitious as that will uh, consider every option. And City of Troy, obviously, as a son of Justify, he's, you know, he's, he's all turf, obviously, on his damn side. He's out of a Galileo mare, a very good race filly by Galileo called Together Forever. Um, sure. But the Justify bit, you know, the, the, there are plenty of options open to him. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out next year. And we just hope that we see a horse that can, uh, uh, you know, go on to, to keep improving. He was he was um, visually unbelievably impressive this year, every start. Um, and uh, if he replicates that sort of form as a three-year-old, we've got a lot to look forward to. I want to talk specifically about the Phillies and Mares sale coming up next week. The way that I have been explaining this to U.S. racing fans who don't know as much about what goes on um, across the pond is to make the analogy to the Night of the Stars Basic Tipton sale that's become such a big deal right in the wake of the Breeders' Cup. I I definitely – is that a fair equivalency, would you say? Yeah, I mean, look, that's very flattering, and it's nice to hear the Tassel's December sale, you know, talked of in those terms. And it, it very much, you know, it is Europe's premier breeding stock sale. It's historically, its influence on, you know, globally is is second to none um, in terms of some of the game-changing broodmares that have been bought at the Tassel's December sales over the years. We took a step towards that. Um, night of the stars element last year for the first time and we introduced what we've called the scepter sessions uh, which is a an uh, to showcase these elite fillies and mares scepter was this extraordinary race filly that was sold on a number of occasions at Tattersall's back in the very first few years of the 20th century back into the very early 1900s quite an extraordinary race filly and we thought it was fitting to name this elite sessions these elite sessions after this um this truly extraordinary race filly and yeah the last year's Scepter Sessions got off to a huge start with the, um, the the sale topper was a fantastic multiple group one winning filly called Alcohol Free, who sold for 5.4 million guineas. And uh, she was uh, uh, second second off the rank was another very smart group one winning filly called Saffron Beach, who made 3.7 million guineas. So it got off to a great start. And the Scepter Sessions, which happen on the Monday and Tuesday of the December Phillies and Mayors sale, um, yeah, this year we've got some very, very eye-catching Group One winning fillies in training, and Group One, Group One quality mares as well. Group One producers and Group One winners in foal. So yeah, it's it's an exciting team. 
I'll ask you to talk maybe about a couple of specific lots in the sale, but I'm going to I'm going to ask you a very one on one question just to educate some folks who might not be or familiar with the term guineas or they've certainly heard the term guineas in terms of uh, the, the the classic races that use that name, but the explanation of of how that currency relates to the currency people are probably more familiar with. Yes, it's and that's a very fair question, and uh, so the guinea it it. it dates back to the very origins of Tattersalls. The company was founded in 1766. So there's a there's a lot of history before, you know, stretching out behind us. And uh, in those days, the guinea was a very commonly used unit of currency, and it was a pound and a shilling. So the shilling was the, the sort of, and a shilling is, is one twentieth of a pound. So yeah. 20 shillings makes a pound. So a guinea is still that. It's a pound and a shilling, which in modern parlance is a pound and five pence. And traditionally, the reason for a guinea was the shilling or the five pence was the commission. Yep. And that remains the same today at Tadassals. We take 5% commission. So we still trade in guineas. I suspect we are the only people still trading in guineas in, in the whole of in the whole of Britain, um, in the whole of the British Isles, and uh, but it's uh, you know it's it, it's a tradition that works. It works well. So, but for every guinea you spend, you're spending a pound and five pence, inclusive of commission. It makes perfect. It's perfect sense. Very very logical. Seventeen sixty six. So you're telling me your company is older than my country. Yes, yeah, so I'm told. <laughs> it's it's fairly it's fairly extraordinary to put it in those terms, but that's true. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about some of the specifics. Obviously, you know, not asking to play favorites here, but putting your uh, putting your 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 sort of uh, news hat on. What are the stories leading into the sale that the Bloodstock publications are going to be focusing in on? Who who are some of the who are some of the, the fillies and mares going through that are going to attract attention? Yeah, I mean, there's some some pretty special fillies and mares in in the sale this year. I think from the American perspective. Um, the, there's some very, very smart broodmares, but the great opportunities that American buyers have is the fillies in and out of training that can go on and continue to race. And we've got nearly 450 of those catalogued, um, ranging from, you know, group one and classic winners all the way down. So there's an awful lot of opportunity to source fillies that can race on successfully, obviously not just in America, but but throughout the world. But amongst the group one winners, we've got, we've got six of them, um, one of them is Cachet, who won the 1,000 guineas last year. So she's, she's, um, it's very rare to have a guineas winner, a classic winner, uh, coming through the December sales, still in training. And she's a, she was a wonderful, wonderful filly. Uh, she was a very good two-year-old. She ran very well in the Breeders' Cup as a, as a juvenile and uh, won the guineas here. A memorable day for her connections, high clear thoroughbreds. She was bought at the Tattersall's Craven Breeze up sale for only 60,000 guineas. And uh, it's a safe bet to say she will provide a very handsome return on investment for for the Highclere Thoroughbreds team. There's for, there's in American interest with two of the Group One winners in the catalogue as well. Andrew Rosen, who's as an owner enjoyed great success here and in America for very many years. He's got Lazoo and Prosperous Voyage, both Group One winners last year co-owned with um, his friend Mike uh, uh, Mark Chan. So they're very exciting prospects as well. And a fantastic filly called Via Sistina, who won the Pretty Polly Stakes earlier in the year and ended the year narrowly being beaten by King of Steel in the uh, in the Group 1 Champion Stakes at Ascot. 
She is a proper rags to riches story. She cost 5,000 guineas at the December yearling sale, bought by her very shrewd owner, Stephen Hillen. And uh, she's, she's, she's travelled a long way from, from that humble purchase price. And she's well-bred. She's by Fastnet Rock. She had a good mare. You know, it's, it's a great story. It's a great story. And to, to complete the, the domestic group one winners is a, another lovely filly called Poptronic, who was a group two winner going into cataloging and, and added a very smart group one win to her portfolio on, on British Champions Day. So uh, she won the British Champions fillies and mare stakes the other day and uh, a very much a, a, a smart racing prospect as well. So, yeah, there's some smart group one winners and some some very interesting group two winners as well. I mean, it's always hard to, to single individuals sure. out, but Rogue Millennium and Relief Rally are two that spring to mind. Uh, Relief Rally, who won the Lowther Stakes at York, very, very impressively. Very smart, quick two-year-old and uh, could be anything. And Rogue Millennium, who's a Group 2 winner at Royal Ascot this year and uh, looks to have a lot of racing left in her as well. So plenty to look forward to on the fillies and training side. Rogue Millennium was responsible for one of my most memorable racing experiences and something that will surely not happen again as long as I live. When we had a day at Ascot, where I had a personal connection to the ownership groups of the first three winners that <laughs> I got to feel like a real big shot, Jimmy, walking around. Oh, and I know the owner, and I know the owner, and I know the owner. That was fantastic. Yeah, it was a great day for the Rogue Millennium team, wasn't it? Lovely for oh. Tom and Jackie Clover and for the Rogues who who, who get a lot of enjoyment out of, out of the sport. And they, they, a lot of feel-good stories. Uh, fantastic. Got a couple more questions for you. In, in the scepter sale, is it similar to the Night of the Stars where in some instances the, the, the Phillies or Mares will be racing again next year? Or is it more of a, a, their careers on the racetrack are done and they're ready to go to the next career? Uh, absolutely. All those Phillies I mentioned are catalogued as Phillies in training. And, uh, and, 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 you know, so there's, I mean, buyers looking to race Phillies on should be, should be looking at the Tattersall's December catalogue very, very closely. I mean, we have got some superstar mares as well. The most, the two most obvious, probably a, a, a mare called Tiona, who won the Group 1 Priva May a couple of years back. Yes. She's only five. She's carrying her first fold to the incomparable Frankel. She's a, uh, she's a Group 1 winner out of a Group 1 winner in fold to Frankel. She's very, very smart. And a, and a late wildcard entry called Kenzie, who is... A unique offering this year. Ken C is uh, uh, the dam of two Group One winners already. She's um, and there has not been one dam of two Group One winners offered for sale at public auction anywhere in the world this year, except her. So she's a she's a very rare opportunity. And uh, one of her Group One winners is a two-year-old cult called Sunway, who's one of the best two-year-old cults in Europe this year. So, And her previous Group One winner was another champion two-year-old called Sealyway, who won the champion stakes at, at Ascot at the end of his three-year-old career and is now standing in France. So those are two outstanding mares. But yes, the opportunities to buy fillies to race on are are huge. There's, there's, a, there's a big, big choice. There'd be... The thick end of well, it's I think just just over ninety black type performing fillies um, in and out of training, as well as you know in amongst the four hundred and fifty odd that we've got in the catalogue. So a lot of opportunity. 
what is the best place for people who want to peruse the catalog to go? I presume everything they need will be right on the Tattersall's website. Absolutely. So tattersall.com, all our catalogs are very easily accessible there. Um, just download them on tattersalls.com. But equally, devotees of Equine Line, they're all there as well. So they can be downloaded there for, for the... I'm, I'm still one of those Luddites who carries around a catalogue. Um, uh, so I, I did try stabbing away at an iPad a little bit, but I, I just, yeah. I, I haven't cracked it yet, Pete. I haven't cracked it. When I when I do my uh, bloodstock agent Halloween costume, I go for the puffy vest and and the physical catalog. It's uh, I guess you're right. I could update it with an iPad, but it's there's something more romantic about having the physical uh, catalog there with you. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. They're, they're heavy enough tomes. They're, they're big fat books, but um, but uh, I have a I have a groaning shelves full of old Tattersall's catalog. <laughs> I I'd hate to see that disappear. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's got to be fun to go and just look through at some point and just remember remembering those horses and seeing, you know, where are they now? That kind of that kind of stuff. Like, I, I love that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, as part of your job, how how much form do you look at for the big races during the year? I mean, it it obviously ties into what you're doing professionally. But is it is it is it necessary to study form to do the job that you do? I think it is, Pete. I think we have to be very focused on on the, the you know what's going on on the race courses, but throughout the world. I mean, literally throughout the world, every single day of the of, of the of the week, every single day of the year that there's good racing going on, we have to be focused on that. Either to see whether <clears throat> whether Tattersall graduates are performing at the highest level, not just here but everywhere in the world or to see if a, a significant result impacts on anything we might have catalogued for upcoming sales. I mean, even at this time of year over the weekend, there was a, a, a filly that was second in a listed race in France that's coming up in the December sale. That's her first bit of black type. That was a significant, significant catalogue update for her. You know, she's a filly called Run, Zarak Run. You know, that's going to make a big difference at the last minute. We have to know these things. We have to be on the button with those. Those sort of bits of information will go out on our social media channels. You know, you can't necessarily keep abreast of every little form update that happens every day. But significant form updates, we need to be on the ball and we need to know that these things are happening. So, yeah, even if I didn't love racing, which I do, we would still have to be focused on what's going on throughout the world on a daily basis. And uh, look, the day you stop being interested in in what's going on on the race courses, it's probably time to move on, isn't it? <laughs> and like, definitely... the, Japan Cup, the Japan Cup this weekend was oh. a magna magnificent spectacle. Um, regardless, <clears throat> regardless of whether it was, you know, whether whether it was going to have an impact on the Tattersall's December sales or any other sales at Tattersall's for that matter, it was a fantastic spectacle for any racing fan to enjoy. And uh, we and that's that's the key to it. We all have we all we all enjoy watching top class racehorses. I fully understand following the racing to the degree you do, but how about predicting the winners? Do you do much? Do you do much on that level as well, or is it more? Is it more following it as sport, or do you do you appreciate the puzzle as well? Yeah, I appreciate the puzzle, but I, it reminds me constantly that I need to stick to the day job. <laughs> <laughs> you can all use a few you, more. You want me on your podcast as a as a as a handicapper. 
yeah, I was half thinking, you know, we, we've got, we're always looking to expand the team of people I enjoy talking to, to come on here and, uh, and, and talk about the, the horses in these races. We had a, we had a really nice chat with Chloe Pitts ahead of the Canadian champions day. And it would be fun. It'd be fun to, to do more as we, uh, as we go forward and always great to hear from you and get your perspective. And we'll be following these sales with, with great interest. Any other notes that we, that we haven't hit that we should get about what's going on at Tattersall's? Well, I think we're thankfully Pete, we've covered a lot of ground, but I think for, for anybody, anybody breeders from throughout the world, the Tattersall's December sales every year is a, is an unmissable event. And there's an awful lot of quality out there. There's probably value for money as well. You know, the, the, the dollar is still very strong against the pound sterling. We've got the thick end of 200 mares in fold to the top 10 broodmare sires. Uh, sorry, by the top 10 broodmare sires in, in Britain currently. So, you know, there's an awful lot of quality there. And some of them in fold to the very best stallions. So there's there's just a world of opportunity. We're looking forward to seeing a good showing from uh, uh, from American buyers in the in, in the coming few days as well, and uh, plenty others from all, all all around the world. It's a it's a very international event. You know what these breeding stock sales are like. This is a, this is where you know the, the industry gathers people yep. from all over the world. They take this as an opportunity not only to source wonderful breeding stock, but to to see old friends and to swap notes on what's going on in their part of the world and how their industry's thriving or or what that what challenges that they may be facing and uh, yeah challenges we all share it's a great it's a great gathering point for the, for the global sport I look forward to uh, to getting to one definitely getting to a Tattersall sale very much on my list Jimmy this was a great pleasure we look to speak with you again soon Pete real pleasure hope we can do it again that's going to do it for this edition of the show, but stay tuned. we got more for you tomorrow that you're going to want to hear. We'll post that in the feed when ready. Our Giving Tuesday special that's going to have some extra content on it as well beyond our visit with Kim Weir. I want to thank our founding partners. Speaking of Kim Weir, Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. We'll hear what they've got cooking when we chat with her tomorrow. trfinc.org slash players, the place to go. I think we're going to do a whiskey mailing this week, so... Act now if you're looking to uh, get a bottle of whiskey for the whiskey lover in your life, or perhaps just yourself. Only way to get it is to donate to TRF, trfinc.org slash players. 10 Strike Racing, always thank them at the beginning of these shows. They've been with us from the beginning as we approach five years more than ever. I'm super appreciative of my friendship with Clay Sanders and Marshall Graham and the rest of the 10 Strike team. Most of all, though, want to thank all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. Going to be doing some listener appreciation content coming up, including, by popular demand, bringing back Sean Borman for a Q&A type of a show. If you've got questions for Sean Borman, submit them to me. Probably the easiest way to do it is through the contact page over at inthemoneypodcast.com. Submit your questions there. We'll uh, team up for Sean. Do something before we get to Christmas with him for sure. This show's been a production of In The Money Media. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatel. May you win all your photos. <laughs>